We are uh, beginning a six-part series of messages where we're going to take time and look for what does it take to have long, healthy, lasting marital love. One that starts with love, leads to marriage, leads to sexuality. And yes, I said the word sex in church. And it's in that order now. Get get that straight. And I realize in this room, the size that there's any number of experiences with this topic, with these topics. Maybe it's love. Love has betrayed you. Love has hurt you. What you thought was love ends up not being love to everyone else. And you kind of lost that loving feeling uh, when it comes to understanding what love is and expressing love. Or maybe it's marriage. Marriage hasn't worked out like you thought. Maybe it's like one of those things that you you feel this tremendous amount of shame. And by all means, we are not about shame gaming here. Okay. We want to restore hope into that. Whether it's sexuality, I I realize that there's a different feelings and thoughts and ideas that come with this topic that we just want to level set things. Okay. We want to biblically level set things when it comes to this, these three topics. And I'm going to emphasize that they come in that order. So the way we're going to do this is I got to give you, before we get into Song of Solomon, I want to give you some axioms, just some bedrocks, just some pillars that we're going to put in the ground and everything else from this point forward for the rest of time until into eternity, we're going to build life on these. Okay. Here's number one. God has a perfect design for your family. I don't know if you feel that. I don't know if you got that. I don't know if you embrace that. But he has a perfect design for each family in here. Now, that design doesn't vary when it's talking about the blueprint of it. The interior lookings and paintings and, and, and styles may change, but the blueprint is right there all along. And it does involve love, marriage, and sexuality. In fact, whenever you go to Genesis, whenever God made the perfect world and he put everything in perfect place and the universe was in perfect order, everything was right and good, he did something in that time in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He made man and after he made man, he made woman and he put them together. And in this hallmark day spring card kind of moment, The first words out of Adam's mouth when he saw Eve weren't exactly worthy of selling any cards. But in his own perfect world, this was what his heart was saying whenever he was expressing love. Look at these words whenever he said this, uh, said this word, this at, at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I know that doesn't sell cards today, but I want you to hear what he's saying. I absolutely love. This is my soulmate. This is the one. God, thank you for this one. This is, whoa, man, she is incredible. And I want her. And so there is love expressed in that verse. Verse 23. Verse 24, we see the very first marriage. We see the marriage of this man and this woman coming together. And in this, we see marriage as the platform for love. Love is built, uh, marriage is built on top of love. You have that love relationship. Then uh, God says this, therefore, he gives us an instruction. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now we know he's laying a blueprint for all marriages. Why do we know that? Because Adam and Eve didn't have a mother and father. So he is laying a foundation that is still applicable to this day. 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. I have been in the ministry for nearly 50, uh, 50 years, for nearly 30 years, okay? Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, I have been in the ministry for nearly 30 years and there's not been a single wedding that I've ever done that I've not quoted from this verse. Because this is the foundation of what a marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a mother and a father, uh, excuse me, a man and a woman leaving mother and father and the mother and father are saying, yes, off the payroll, go, go, go. And they're excited to see this day come. They're counting down the days. And then they are to become one, united in hopes and aims in one another. Now, I love the beauty of this. Again, ideal world, ideal marriage, God's perfect design is that a man and a woman in all of their differences, anatomically different, Chromosome difference, emotionally different, that in all the vast differences, God would be able to make them one. Can you imagine that? That is an incredible feat. And you're saying right now, if you're married, yes, it will be an incredible feat one day when God gets us there. The reality is it's hard to get there, but that's a part of the workings of God and what he does in us. But it's not only love, it's not only marriage. And by the way, I must say this is sequential. This is the proper order. Okay, biblically, it's the order. Love leads to marriage, leads to sexuality. The very next verse, he gives us a beautiful picture of what sexuality looks like. It's not a dirty word. I'm going to say the word sex so many times in this series of messages, you're either going to get uncomfortable and leave, or you're going to get comfortable and realize that it's not a dirty word. So hang with me on this. It's not a dirty word. The very next verse he says in verse 25 says, and a man and a wife were both naked and they were unashamed. They were not ashamed. They were in glad. They were glad to be together. They were glad to connect. It was something that was beautiful and awesome and it was meant to be that way. That's where we're going and that's what we're building upon. And by the way, uh, it has been said that the Song of Solomon is... Karl Barth said this, the Song of Solomon is the commentary to Genesis chapter 2. Because we're going to see in the Song of Solomon that love, marriage, and sexuality are the essence of that book. Okay? That's where we're going. Now, that's God's perfect design for our homes. But here's another axiom that we need to really sink our teeth into. We live foolishly trying to modify God's design. We are setting ourselves up for heartbreak, disappointment, brokenness when we get these out of order. When we get these and we do it our own way. But I love them and we're going to get married anyway. Or if I do this, then, then we will love each other. Or we're going to, you know, you just fill in all those blanks of all those rational thoughts in your heads of why you, no, 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 stop it. Go back to God's original design. Let that be the blueprint and don't get off of it. We live a foolish life when we do that. Let's, let's, where I base this on is Psalm 127. Read it out loud with me. Let's all read it together. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless you're going off of his plans, his blueprint, his design, then you are living and building your life on a faulty, on a faulty plan. So let me encourage you. We got six weeks. Next week, invite somebody. You got an invite card in the seat with you, or maybe on the door on the way out. Grab one of these. You know somebody who is living a faulty plan. Bring them with you. 
All right, I'm not, there's not going to be shame, but we're going to have honest conversations, biblical conversations, healthy conversations around eight chapters, 117 verses. We're not going to read them all. I'm going to let you read a lot of them. Uh, eight chapters, 117 verses through the book of the Song of Solomon. Now, to be finding the book of Song of Solomon, if you have your whole Bibles or screen Bible, or if you grab one of the journal Bibles, it should be really easy to find the Song of Solomon, all right? It's located in a large section of the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literatures. You've got the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's Moses and the Law. Then you've got the historical books from Joshua and all the way through the book of Nehemiah till you come to the book of Job. You've got Job, from Job all the way to Song of Solomon is the Wisdom Literature. Then after that you have the Prophets. We are in the tail end of the listing of the Wisdom Literatures. Now when you look at Wisdom Literatures, what are we looking at? You look at the... Book of Job, it's one of them. It just gives us wisdom on pain. All of us deal with pain. How are you going to deal with pain? How are you going to navigate the pain of life? Psalms gives us wisdom towards God. How am I connecting with God? How do I connect with God? How am I going to make it in this life without God? You can't. You're foolish to do that. He tells us that in Psalms. Ecclesiastes gives us wisdom on success. A lot of us can handle failure. Some of us cannot only a few of us can handle success. He talks about his own success and his own failure with his own success. And we talked about that earlier on this year. Proverbs deals us, gives us wisdom towards the choices of life. We're all going to make choices and decisions in life. Proverbs gives us the wisdom. Song of Solomon gives us wisdom towards love, marriage, and sexuality. Gives us the wisdom that we need, hopefully, to build healthy marriages. Matt Chandler wrote a book that I think is worthy of reading. Pick it up yourself and read it. He said, in, Song of, in the Song of Songs, uh, we watch a couple navigate the age-old pursuit of romance. The pursuit, actually, of one another. As they fight for purity against their flesh, embrace the gracious covenant of marriage, celebrate the amazing gift of sex, and learn how to gracefully grow old together. All the while, they disagree honorably, they encourage constantly, and they keep the fires of godly romance burning. What a beautiful last sentence. May that be said of every single marriage in this room. But we do that when we go back and we live off of God's design. Now, I tell you, um, when you come to Song of Solomon and go ahead and, and be looking at that, and you get to the very first part of it, I mean, it starts hot and it doesn't end until it's hot, even hotter, okay? I mean, whenever you go to the first four verses and you have kisses, wine, oil, and bedroom scenes, you're hot in the first four verses, okay? So that's why when I look at the Song of Solomon, I can't look at it as some people have. They have made it a historical narrative. Some have made it allegorical. I certainly can't do that one. Allegoricals where you kind of make things, everything's type, and you have to have a lot of creativity to kind of make everything a type of something. And so that's not, I don't think, a healthy interpretation. Historical narrative, it was never intended to be a historical narrative. It is poetry, all right? Poetry is never linear, okay? It has all kinds of emotions. It has flowery speech. It has metaphors. It does bring in things like that that we have to kind of navigate through them. And so we're going to be looking at this book, but we're going to have honest conversations about it. We're going to deal with uh, this week attraction and just understanding what attraction looks like. And Hopefully you haven't lost that loving feeling, but certainly hope you can rekindle that loving feeling uh, in, in your life. 
Next week, we're going to talk about nurturing. Lori and I are going to share together, okay? So we're going to talk about how do you nurture this marriage? Because if you start it well, it doesn't mean it's going to end well unless you nurture it well, okay? We'll talk about nurturing. Then the third week, listen to this, moms, dads, everyone in here is an adult. This is affection, okay? This week, we're going to talk about affection. The title of the message is Sheet Music, okay? So I'll let you fill in the blanks on that one. There's going to be these kinds of double talk, okay? I'm saying that to you adults, okay? You will fill in the blanks on the other stuff and uh, let you explain. Well, when the kids get in the car, what was Pastor Mike talking about? When, I don't want to let y'all deal with that. All right. No, we're going to help you. Actually, we're going to give you resources starting next week. Our student ministry is building some right now. Our children's ministry has already got theirs together. And we're going to put resources out in the back so you can have age-appropriate conversations with your children. Now, as much as you're uncomfortable with this conversation right now, parents, guess what? Your teenager sitting next to you is incredibly uncomfortable with it. And so I am the one who's the instigator of this conversation. So you as a parent need to be the parent in this. You need to talk about it, okay? You need to own it. That means you need to be able to have those conversations. Lori and I, from the very beginning of having these conversations with our kids, we called things body parts by body parts. Okay, you call them by what they're called. Okay, you don't make weird names for them, and you don't skirt issues, and you whatever. Okay, these are some guidelines. We'll talk about those in the days and the weeks ahead. Now you think maybe thinking I'm a single person. What am I doing here? I need to just bounce out of here for six weeks. Nope, absolutely not, because the Song of Solomon was not written to married people. It was not written to married men or married women. It was actually written to single women. Hey, Mike, where do you get that? Because not once, but five different times, this statement is made. I adjourn you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Makes it in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8. He makes this statement to women who are single. He even warns them, don't awaken love too early. He makes that statement three times. So it is very important that we have these conversations now so that we don't allow love to awaken too early. So Song of Solomon is written to women. Proverbs, ironically, is written mainly to guys. Forty different times it refers to men or sons in the book of Proverbs. So you got Song of Solomon written to women. Proverbs written to men. One person said like this, Proverbs is, is for the young boys and they're told to go take a cold shower. And Song of Solomon is written to the girls telling them to go take a cold shower. So that's about what we're looking at here. So it's giving us hopefully some anchors to build our life on. It is not going, it's going to be, it's going to be adult conversations, but I'll promise you this, it's not 50 shades of gray. Okay. It's not going to be scandalous riotous, free-flowing. It is a man and it is a woman coming out of a love, marital relationship. And we get to, pardon the pun, peek behind the veil and learn how to love well, be married well, and do the most beautiful, intimate thing that only a married and a couple should do together. He's going to refer to a shepherd boy. He's going to refer to the Shulamite woman. We don't ever know the names of the people because, again, it's poetry. You don't have to know the names. It's not a historical narrative. Again, people have made it that way. 
It is poems. It's 20 different poems all lumped together in eight chapters. But it's Solomon who's writing, and I believe, along with others, that it is Solomon writing in the third person about his love for his bride. So as, as he's writing this out here, and again, these are notes that you can take on your own out there. So let's look at it. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, you can write that in the margin of your notes. It talks about how Saul, Solomon himself wrote a thousand and five different songs. He was a songwriter, okay? He was a poet. He was a, he was a romantic, Solomon was. And again, I can unpack his whole married life, and, and that's a whole, marriage unto, a whole message series unto itself. But the point is, is that he was writing this, and this song is his song of songs. That's literally what he's trying to say here. Out of all the 1,005 songs that I wrote, this is my number one hit. This is it. I'm going to give it out to you. Many people believe that it was used for seven days of a marriage, marital ceremony among the Jewish people. That it was sang out over the course of a seven-day wedding feast that would go on. He said, this is my song of songs. And then in verse 2, it says this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now you'll notice if you've got the journal Bible... That there will be she, and then it will be others, and then it will be she, and then it will be others. Because there's different voices speaking. You might circle those as we go through the text. But when you see this, notice what he said there. He said, let, me kiss, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. You talk about a sweet moment. You remember your first kiss? I do. It was a train wreck. And we only kissed one time. It was that bad. She was gone. But do you remember the first time that kiss became incredible? That moment when you embraced, this is what she's saying. She said, this is sweeter than wine. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew language, there's two words for wine. There's the word, first of all, sakar, which actually means intoxicating wine. It's fermented wine. It's drunkenness wine, okay? It's wine that will get you drunk, wake up in the next morning wondering what I did the night before, and oh no, did I do that, really? That's, that, that's not the kind of wine he's talking about here. He's talking about a different kind of wine. He's talking about the, the Hebrew word yayin wine, which is a grape juice wine, which is non-fermented. It's a sweet wine. It's a safe wine. It's a healthy wine. It's something that you don't regret in the morning when you wake up. Your kisses are like sweet, healthy grape juice is what he's saying. Why do I say all that? Because the kind of love that, that we need to have is not a regretful kind of love. It's not a haphazard kind of love. It ought to be a love that is sweet and healthy and good and right. And so what does that look like? What does this attraction look like, the safe, sweet, healthy kind of attraction? Well, here it is. Here's what we're talking about. Number one, it's a spiritual attraction. Number two, there's an emotional attraction. Number three, there's a physical attraction. And let me say this in that order in that order. And this is where you're going to have to go command and control on your attractions. Because if you get those out of order, you will find up that you will get 
love, marriage, and sexuality out of order. You keep those in order and they will be the guardrails you need to stay on track with God's design for your family. You get those out of order, no telling what will happen. So let's, let's jump into this. So when you look at spiritual attraction, what does this look like? I just want to ask the ladies first. Is your man more than that knight in shining armor? And guys, let me ask you, is your wife more than a bombshell? I mean, she's just a beautiful babe in your life. I hope there's something more than just the surface. I hope there's something deep down. Whenever you look at this passage, don't skip past verse 3 whenever it says this. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Basically, they're saying this. Your name, your character, your reputation, what people know about you, every girl in the world wants to be with you. He had a name about him. And his name represents character, represents who you are as an individual. That's what a name represents. A name represents something more in the Bible times than it does in our time. A name is just a name in our times, but in the name in the scripture meant something. Think about it like this. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're saved by the name of Jesus and Jesus alone in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, it says in the book of Philippians. So a name means something. Proverbs says it like this. A good name is more desirable than great riches. Think about it like this. The name of the man that you're with, ladies, he's more than the sugar daddy of your life. Y'all look at him and say, is his character richer than his wallet? Is his morality deeper than his emotions? It's more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. The name is important. Abraham Lincoln said this character was like a tree. Reputation is like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of. The tree was the real thing. The real thing is our character. What's your character like? We used to send our kids out of the house uh, on a date or to school or driving for the very first time. And I, I, we picked this up from somebody. We'd say it like this. Remember you're McDaniel. Now, I don't, what does that mean? We never said to our kids, hey, remember you're a PK. Remember you're a preacher's kid and people are going to look bad at you because you're a preacher's kid. No, it's not about my job position in life. Hopefully the name McDaniel means something or will mean something that they'll want to protect themselves. They'll own it themselves. Let it mean something to them. His character was what made him. That was his spiritual depth of him. Her godliness is seen in the life that she lives. She is a godly woman. And we see that. And when you look at verse 5 and 6, you may not see it exactly. You have to kind of read it into the culture of that day. When you read verse 5 and 6, it says this. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me. Because I am dark, because of the sun has looked upon me. Now he goes on and reads about why, why was she so dark? Why was, she, why was her, her, her skin like, that, like the tents of Kedar? It's because she was working. She was working hard, doing hard labor. 
And again, that was a symbol, that was a statement of a woman of character. She wasn't a gossiper. She wasn't hanging out in the bars. She wasn't one of those who, who wasted her life away, but she actually did something with her life. And that was a sign of character. That was a sign of a spiritual depth about her. You see this throughout the Old Testament. Rachel was a shepherdess. Rebecca was, uh, goes down into the well. And because she goes down into the well to get water, Jacob saw her as a godly woman. Zipporah was Moses' wife, and she was a shepherdess. When you look at the Proverbs 31, now anybody, any woman that's been in church any length of time wants to be a Proverbs 31 woman, and that's an admirable, admirable person to be. When you read through the Proverbs 31, you think, there's no way I'll ever amount up to that because it's so daunting. Look at, listen to these words. She seeks, does this sound like a lady who's just wasting her life away? eating bonbons and watching soap operas. She seeks wool and flax. She works willingly willingly with her hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is is night. She provides food for her house. So she portions her her maidens. Now, again, some people get into this. They go, oh, uh, the women have to work or women don't work or women are at home. And she's both. She's doing it all. She's an incredible lady. She considers a field and she buys it. She's she, uh, uh, with the fruit of, uh, uh, of her hands. She plants a vineyard. Again, notice how they're out in the field and they're working. And that is a sign of a Proverbs 31 woman. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms. That's in verse 17. It keeps going to verse 19. If you were to segment out Proverbs 31, you're going to find that they spend more time talking about what the woman does with her life as the character of a godly Proverbs 31 woman. That is the number one category they focus on. And of course, the most quoted verse of Proverbs 31 is verse 30. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is in vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she is praised. Beauty is... What is it? Charm is deceitful. Beauty is in vain. Don't start with beauty. Start with character. Start with the, the faithfulness in her relationship to God. And notice that this Shulamite woman, when you go on down to verse 7, notice that the, what this Shulamite woman is unwilling to do. Verse 7, tell me whom uh, my soul loves. That's a common phrase that we'll even see next week. When you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. She wants to be with her man. But listen to what she's not willing to do. For why should I be like one who veils herself? See, in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 38, verse 14, you can read it for yourself. The woman who veiled herself was a prostitute. She was not going to be a woman who would give her body away without her life. She was a woman that was going to give herself away to the man that was going to love her well and love her fully and love her completely. And you find this, this, this woman is uncompromising. She's not going to be wooed by some man. She's a woman of character. She works hard. I graduated from Rogers High School a number of years ago, back when it was the largest graduating class. About 800 students, I think, was a part of our class at that time, a lot more now. 
But I was the boy in high school that you as parents did not want your daughter to bring home. That's just point blank how it was. I was the boy that you didn't want your daughters to bring home for a lot of my growing up years. I, 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 I'm not saying this with pride. I'm saying this with shame, actually, that I was the guy who, if we broke up, that's okay. I'll go find somebody over here within hours or days. And then I go to somebody over here who break up. I, I, until one day, I found myself in my bedroom floor laying face down, crying my broken heart out. Crying out, and nobody, no girl, nobody was there to listen to me. But I felt this overwhelming sense of God's presence. Because see, what I had done is I had made girls idols in my life. And I would give myself, and I would, it was ironic that I was laying and crying in the place that I made girls an idolatry in a bedroom. But it was in that moment that God met me there. And he pretty much told me this. He said, Mike, stop it. Stop the dating. And for one year, I did a moratorium on dating in my life. And when you're in high school, that's an eternity. But I knew that was the right thing to do. At that point, I knew that my character wasn't what it ought to be. And I was dating girls' character that they weren't what they ought to be. But who was going to fix who? I had to fix me. I couldn't fix them. So I started writing out, Mike, where do you need to be made right? Where, what, what do you need to be for the person that you're going to marry? So I started writing out the, the perspective that I needed to have in my life. And then I was going to ask that this girl that I would one day be with, that she would have. So basically, I had standards for my life now. Guidelines, guardrails, that, and they were tight too. Tight. In fact, I still got the list at home. And what happens whenever you're a class of 800 and let's say for easy math, 400 of them were girls and 400 of them were guys. What do you do in that case whenever you got 400 prospects out there? You write good godly standards for your life and you put those same godly standards upon expectations upon the people that you're going to date. All of a sudden now that, that, that pool of 400 girls shrinks significantly. And then all of a sudden, I'm sitting there looking through the standards of my life measuring up to these, and is her life measuring up to these, and all of a sudden, this little girl right over here came into focus. And I'd had lunch with her on her very first day in high school, and I was dating some other girl, and didn't, she had to remind me of that later on. I paid her no mind. But that day, she came into full focus. And we've been dating for 34 years ever since. And we're not done dating either. Set some standards. Set some standards of what you're going to be and then what you're going to ask that other person to be. And let it start there. Biblical quality standards. So I'm going to give homework every week to you, okay? Whether you're married or single. So if you're single, your homework is this. Go write your standards for who you're going to be so that you can know who you're going to present to somebody else. I don't care if you're in high school or junior high. You can write those standards now and it'll save you a lot of heartache down the road. Married people, you write down two character qualities that God is working on you. And you give them to your spouse. 
and you say, would you pray these into my life? And you all exchange that and you begin to pray for each other. It's giving you basically what I need and what God's laying on my heart for myself. You're not telling them what they need. So we've got to regard each other with a spiritual attractiveness. Let that be the the bedrock of it all. Then we relate with each other through an emotional attraction. That leads us to number two, the emotional attraction. This Shulamite bride here is in this story and we don't know her name again, but we know her story. Now, I want you to hear this, because I don't know that in my years of ministry I've ever talked about this the way I'm going to talk about it now. We don't know her name, but we know her story. And the problem is, is that we know a lot of people's names, but we don't know their stories. But there's a story behind every name, and some of those stories are dark. If you look at verse 6, why was she so dark? Why did her... Her, 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 her skin was like the tints of Kadar, which, by the way, is, uh, is like, like cured leather uh, of goat skin is what it basically is. Just hardened leather. That's the way her skin looked because she'd been out working in the fields. Why, why, would, a, why would you do that to, the, to, the, to this young lady? My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me keeper of the vineyards. My mother, she wouldn't even call them her brothers. My mother's sons. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Some of you have had people in your life that were supposed to be safe. That were supposed to be people that would love you well. But they've taken advantage of you. They've hurt you. They've hurt you deeply. And I'm talking to ladies primarily, but I can also tell you that there are men. I talked with somebody just between gatherings that told me their story, and it was a man of sexual crimes, sexual sins, hurts. It could have been a coach. It could have been a teacher. It could have been a pastor. It could have been a brother. It could have been a sister. It could have been a mother. It could have been a father. It could have been a granddad. It could have been a grandmother. It could have been somebody that we're supposed to be safe with that has reached into your life and violated you. Now, guess what? You carry that into your marriage. Wounded and broken as it is, you carry that with you. You think, no, 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 it's behind me. I'm forgetting. No, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Because what this lady does is she says, I'm unattractive. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. I, I, I don't, I, I, I've, got, I've got skin like leather. Don't, don't look at me. I'm not beautiful. Move on. The thing about marriage is marriage is where we love and honor and cherish. And when you sign up for that, you don't sign up to love and honor, cherish when everything's beautiful and awesome and good. You love, honor, and cherish even in the darkest times. Even the brokenness. So what does he say to her? Verse 8. When she says, I'm not pretty to look at, don't look at me. He says this. If you do not know, uh, if you do not know oh, most beautiful among women. You're the most beautiful among women. He says it not one time in this book, but in eight chapters, he says it 15 different times. Now, here's a lesson, guys and women. No matter how 
far back those scars have been, they play a recording in a person's life that says, you're unworthy, you're not fit, you can't be loved, you've got to earn love, you've got to give, you got, you, you, all, that, all those recordings in the head. And the only way we on the other side can help that other person out, our, help, our, our soulmate, is we've got to replace the recordings in their head. And he says 15 different times in the book of Song of Solomon, oh, beautiful one. No, 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 you're not ugly. Oh, beautiful one. And not only that, he says, you're the most beautiful among all the women. Listen, men, listen, ladies, your husband, your husband, 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 you need to make sure your wife knows that she is the most beautiful among all the women of the world. And it's not that you get to read the menu but not order. It's not that you get to goggle at this person and goo-goo at that one. It is she is the most beautiful among all women. Keep yourself and your eyes only for her. You have a special role in rewriting and reformatting the voices in your wife's head, especially if they've experienced abuse. Verse 9 and 10 says, I compare you, my love. And he goes on. Guys, this is where he goes off course here. I do not recommend you say this line to your wife. (laughs) You're like a horse. (laughs) A mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Not a good pickup line. Unless you know what a mare was. Unless you knew who Pharaoh was. Pharaoh had all the horses that he could handle. But a mare was a stallion, was a white horse, pure, best trained, beautiful, would dance when it walked. It was the most beautiful of horses. And he said to his wife, his bride, you are the most beautiful among them all. Use whatever you can. Ladies, listen very carefully as well. Because the challenge is given by this Shulamite lady when she says, Oh, king was uh, on his couch. Now notice how she takes care of herself for her man. Emotionally trying to connect with him. My nard gave forth the fragrance. My beloved, uh, to me, is a satch of myrrh. Notice the fragrance and the sense that she's giving off that lies between my breasts. Now, I don't think for any skinny minute that she's wearing a mud pie, roller hair, and an oversized t-shirt from the guy's uh, closet at this point. She is enticing, and she is sensitive to his needs and his longings. She's saying you're valuable. It's not just sexual. You're valuable because she goes on to say, you're like the henna blossoms. Henna blossoms. When I was in the, uh, when I was in Greece last time, I actually was walking through the agora of Athens, and this is the old Market Street. And the guide pointed out. I said, "That's an old henna blossom tree," and it was just this old scraggly bush. And I knew I was preaching from this passage here in a few months. And I, I looked at it real closely. And you have to get really close to the henna blossom because it's this big kind of burly kind of bush, but it's got these little tiny petals on it. Big bush. Tiny, delicate petals. If you're not careful, you can brush off, knock them down, step on them, and they're gone. Listen, ladies, the guys won't like me telling you this, but that big bravado man, he's really a tender blossom. 
And if you henpeck him, and if you don't honor and cherish him, and you don't value him, he's going to wither. And I love the next statement because he says in verse 14, he says, in the vineyards of Engedi, in the vineyards of where where's that at? Go find it on a map. You're going to find it right next to the Dead Sea. The lowest point on the earth where everything is dead. There is no life anywhere. Masada is there. Qumran community is there. How did they even live out there in that desert, arid climate? But then there is cutting up through the rocks, this little Ingeti, this little strip. We actually had lunch there when we were there last time. This little strip, that's where there's this oasis in the middle of the desert. That's where David, Solomon's daddy, went and ran for safety so that he could get away from Saul. Listen, ladies, you need to be the safe emotional place that your husband can run because the world outside is a desert, is the Dead Sea, and wants to chew him up and spit him out. And I promise you, he may be a burly bush, but he's really a tender blossom. And he needs a valley that he can find as a safe place. If your husband can't be real and raw with you without henpecking, without picking it apart, it's not a safe place. And he will close up and he will close off and he will shut down. Leads me to number three. And notice it's number three. First of all, there is this emotional, excuse me, first of all, there's this spiritual connection. Secondly, there's this emotional connection. And thirdly, there's the physical connection. So put this down, guys. I've asked a number of guys this before. Before you touch her body, you've got to ask yourself, have I touched her heart? Have I touched her heart? So the attraction comes on. I love, I love verse 16. It's where it's going to get hot now. You think it was hot now? Behold, you are beautiful. Now she's speaking to him. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch. You remember back in verse 12, it was his couch. Now they're going to our couch. This is why I know they're married. They're going to our couch that's green, it's fertile, it's ripe, it's ready for us. Let's go to the our couch. The beams of the house are like cedar. The rafters are like pine. You're a strong man. I'm inviting you. Notice, ladies, She's initiating the invite. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 2. Notice how the, listen to this. Notice how the tape recorder changed. She went from being this ugly duckling in the desert, taking care of vineyards. Now what does she say about herself? She says, I'm the rose of Sharon. I'm the lily of the valley. Her recording had changed. Why? Because again, you are beautiful, verse 15. You are beautiful, verse 15. You are beautiful, verse 8. You are beautiful again and again. He rewrites the recording in her head, in her heart. He is touching her heart and she is inviting him in. Verse 1, she says, I'm the lily of the valley. And you know what he says in verse 2? He echoes it back. You better believe it, baby. You're the lily among the brambles. Let's get it on. The lily, tender, delicate, 
as well. Now, I want to say this in, again, adult conversation here, fill in the blanks. Realize this, men and women, communication is the best lubrication to love. It's about to get erotic here. Warning, I'm just going to tell you that. I'm not going to give a lot of explanation. It's all adult content. You fill in the blanks as we read through here. Verse 2, uh, verse beginning in verse 3, as an apple tree among the trees. She says to him, you are a, the apple tree among all the other apple trees. Just like you're the woman among women, you, now he, she's saying, uh, uh, yes, yeah, she's saying back to him, you're the tree among the trees. You're the apple tree. So that my beloved among the young men, with great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Verse four. How did she feel about this? He brought me to the banquet house. His banner over me was love. I love how she was reaching out and meeting his needs. But you know why she did that? She wanted to do that because he was lifting her up. He brought her into the court, into the banner, in a banner of love, into a banquet. This is the woman I'm proud of. He wasn't ashamed of her. He was in delighted by her. Listen, guys, if you treat the physical as a transaction and not an interaction between two souls and not just two bodies, you're missing it. She goes on to say, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. You've basically taken, taken my breath away. And I close with verse six. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now, guys and gals, I don't need to give explanation to that. This is a tender, beautiful moment because they loved each other, because they're married to each other, and because what comes out of that? Because sexuality comes out of that. In that order every single time. Life principle for you, physical love is best born out of emotional health and spiritual depth in marriage. Lori and I have been dating for 34 years, married for 29 years this December. And let me just say it to you, and you read between the lines. It is better now in every area of our marriage than it's ever been. Had a couple introduce themselves, or I knew them, 55 years married, told me at the end of the first gathering, we've been married for 50 years, and she looked at me, she says, it's better now than it's ever been. Why does it have to get cold? Why does it have to lose its spark? Why do you have to fall out of love? You don't. Next week, we're going to talk about nurturing. But you don't have to get unattracted to someone. Paul calls us the mystery of marriage in Ephesians, and I close with that. 
It's a mystery. I can't figure marriage out sometimes. Ephesians 5, 31, 32. Put the verse up there, guys, if you don't mind. It says, this mystery is profound. He's talking about the very passage we started with. He refers back to Genesis. This mystery is profound. I can't explain marriage. It doesn't always make sense to me. Lori and I had an argument just this past week. She still doesn't get it right sometimes. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, it's a mystery. But you know what the beautiful thing about this is he gives us in that same Ephesians passage, the most comprehensive passage Paul talks about marriage, is he talks about it and he says this. It's like a relationship with Jesus. It's like a relationship with Jesus. Uh, Friends, you're going to get the most out of your marriage the sooner you enter into a relationship with Jesus. Experience Christ. First and foremost, if you want to unlock the mystery of marriage, experience Christ. Walk in a relationship with him. I tell you this, I love Lori more and I love Lori better because I love Jesus first. I learned how to love Lori. I came from a broken home. I came from conditional love. My mother, my my family, they loved me, but they just didn't know how to do the marriage thing that well. And I don't disrespect them in that. I have learned through that. I have been a better pastor because of that. But I'll tell you this. I learned how to love from loving Jesus first. If you don't have that, I don't see how you make it. Of any depth, I challenge you. Number two, dig deeper. This is a six-week study. It's going to be over before you know it. Make it count. Take that Bible Read it, study it. We're going to give you resources every single week that's going to take it deeper, deeper, deeper. You can go as deep as you want or you can stay as shallow as you want. You want your marriage deep or you want it shallow. It's up to you. I'm putting that on you. Number three, get connected. Get connected to a group. You need people, I need people in my life that will walk with me. We can walk together we got groups that are forming right now, not, have not been meeting. We'll start meeting this next week. If you want to be a part of them, Wade will be out in the gallery. Let me pray. Father God, thank you. That even though marriage is a great big mystery and some of us have not done as well as others, it doesn't need to stay a mystery. It can be one of hope and reconciliation. It can be one that can be restored. Even if it's broken, you cannot even go back to that other. Lord, what will the future look like? What will tomorrow look like? What will the next relationship? Let's get it right now with you. And God, if anybody in this room doesn't know you, I pray today that you would awaken their soul. I pray where they sit, they will say yes to you, Jesus. Right where they sit, they'll say, yes, Jesus, I want you, I need you. And then, Lord, they'll rise up and they'll find me in the gallery. They'll find somebody. They'll tell somebody about the new relationship that they have in Christ. I pray for the hurting in the room. I pray for those who went through wounds as a child and have never told anyone. But they live with that wound. 
And they live with the recording in their head that they're unworthy, they're unbeautiful, they're, 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 they can't be loved. They must buy love. God, set them free. Give them life and love. Lord, we thank you for these moments together. Do your work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?